You are listening to the message by Antioch Centre for the Nations. For more information, please visit www.antiochcenterforthenations.org. Thank you. I started looking through the scriptures and I was brought back to the, the time that uh, King David wanted to bring the Ark of God, the Ark of the Covenant, back. Uh, he, he was estranged from the Ark because of some incidences that took place. And he began to feel a greater and greater longing. I think we know the story initially as David was exalted to the place of king. And he was reigning in Hebron, and, and uh, he was creating a world, or God was facilitating him with a world around him of great and mighty men. Uh, not just his men that were with him at the cave of Adullam, but now many forces are joining David. They're coming from all different sides. Whole military bands are showing up now that they know that David's on the throne. And they're saying, look, I'm a captain of these many soldiers we pledge our allegiance to you. And, and God just added uh, regiments and groups and the kingdom grew. And a lot of people that actually revolted and that were already against King Saul and against, uh, they had already rebelled. They immediately, when they heard that David was king, they came to him. So David was suddenly feeling all this responsibility and a need to, to do something to uh, facilitate God's people. And so he wanted to make provision for God's presence to be with the people. Now, his first attempt, he went to retrieve the ark and bring it to his people, but uh, he lacked a little bit of understanding. He lacked decent respect and honor. And as a result, poor Uzzah, who was helping him because they put the Ark of the Covenant on a, a cart with an ox. And there was apparently a rut in the road or something that caused the Ark to be jostled upon that cart and it was not bound correctly. And when that happened and the cart shifted, the Ark began to slide. Uzzah, who was standing by, reached up and stopped it. When he stopped it instantly, he died. The fire came out from the presence of God and he killed him. And David was horrified. As I said, David became angry. Uh, where they were going by on the road where this took place, there was a house there by a man named Obed. And so uh, they put the ark in his house. And I always reflect on that. I think, gosh. Uh, they saw, they were obviously standing on the road. It's right near their house where this procession is taking place. They see the cart. They see what happened to Uzzah and David horrified and wondering what to do. And so he turns and sees their house and says, put it in their house. And uh, that's a really distressful thing for them. Imagine if you saw this thing, kill someone, and then suddenly I'm putting it in your house. And so I always envision like a normal uh, Western style house, you know, that you have a living room and a kitchen. And there right in the middle of the living room is the Ark of the Covenant. And they have to still live in this house. Imagine if you ever went through that living room, you probably scraped the wall to stay as far away from this thing as you could. And so the respect that they had 
for that ark was immense. Fear, yes, but the Bible says fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Uh, Jesus said, don't fear the one who can destroy your body, but fear the one who can put your soul into hell. That our fear, our reverence, our honor, that David did not quite understand it. David was a great guy in the eyes of God. He had an amazing reputation with, with the Lord, but he made a mistake. So he learned, he did it better, and he went back, which we're going to see in a moment. But uh, when he went back, he, he found out that in Obed-Edom's house where they put the ark, God so blessed that family because of their reverence, because of their honor of the presence of God represented by that ark, that their crops went wild, their animals over-reproduced. Like they had freakish reproduction of God's blessings that came upon them. And I find that to be true. I find that more that we honor the presence of God, the greater the blessing we experience in our life. And I find it corresponds also to the antithesis of that honor. The less we honor, the less blessings there are in many, in many realms. And so to maximize, and then we don't just honor God because we want to be blessed. We want to honor God because we love him and reverence his presence. We want to understand this. And really our covenant, and this is what's fascinating about this whole issue. And David, when he did retrieve the ark, we'll see in a moment, he did not have a temple to put it into. So he basically pitched a tent and put it in that tent. That tent became known as the Tabernacle of David. And it's spoken about in the passages of Scripture, in the Messianic prophecies, in Isaiah, Amos, and those passages that are also, there's segments of the Psalms that talk about the Tabernacle of David being symbolic of a restoration of connection or connectivity between God and man that, was no longer or would no longer be limited to just the Israelites. And so this is what James, the pastor in Jerusalem, came up with when Paul and Peter, really, Peter was the first one, I'm sorry, Peter went to the house of Cornelius, we know the story, and that was the first foray or entrance into ministry to the Gentiles that took place. And the only reason why Peter did it, of course, was because of the vision on the roof of the sheet that came down full of animals that were unclean and clean. And God said, rise, kill and eat. But he, a very discriminating Jewish man, said, I cannot eat these. These are unclean animals. And God said, do not call unclean what I call clean. And he experienced this vision three times so that God could convey to him that whatever God says is clean, is clean. And it says there, parenthetically, Luke wrote in the book of Acts that he ha said this, having made all meats clean, which he applied it to the physical meats, which we're grateful for if we ever eat bacon or, you know, you eat foods, uh, you know, satay or something that is made of uh, whatever meats that would otherwise be kosher. We can eat those things and we are free to do so because God has enabled that. But for Peter, it meant to obey what God was doing in those men that came to Joppa looking for him in the house of Simon the Tanner, found Peter and knocked and said that our master sent us to bring you. And the Lord had already told him, go with those men. 
There's, they're coming to get you. Go with them and don't ask any questions. So he did, and he returned and found himself suddenly in the house full of Gentiles ready to hear the word of God. And that's where he started his message. You know that this is illegal, right? That's, that was the beginning of his message. But he preached to them, and before he could even finish his message, they were so eager, it says the Holy Spirit fell on all those that heard the word, and they were baptized in the Holy Spirit and spoke in tongues. The people who were with Peter were amazed and said that, wow, so the Holy Spirit also is for the Gentiles, also for people that are not Jewish? Obviously, he did it, and the Holy Spirit is in control. I like what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the Holy Spirit distributes the gifts severally as he wills. So he's the one that decides. So the Holy Spirit demonstrated this. And so Peter gets in trouble. He goes back to the religious council there in Jerusalem, and they want an explanation. And he tells them the story of what took place, whereby they say, well, then our hands are tied. If God did that, God did that. And so they're listening, and it says in Acts chapter 15, verse 12, the whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. Now, now we go back to the moment where Paul had gone and preached, and they sent the spies out to see what he's doing, to spy out his liberty, and he now has a full-fledged ministry devoted to reaching the Gentiles, and they have to call him in. And we've studied a lot about that, but it says, when they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. Now, this was the account of Peter, so he's talking about Simon Peter. Simon said that this happened. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written, after this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild, and I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things. Things known from long ago. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. So the church decided. Now they made some decrees about things that they shouldn't do, shouldn't eat food offered to idols, and ask them to remember the poor, abstain from fornication. So this tabernacle of David, this fallen tent, that is rebuilt. What is the tabernacle of David? Well, the, the tabernacle of David, in reference, it's also in Isaiah uh, chapter 16, verse 5, and in Amos chapter 9, verse 11, for those who want to get more biblical in another time and go search it out. And so the reference that he's referring to in the prophets, he means those passages in Isaiah 16, 5, and in Amos 6, 11. So the, the Hebrew word, ohel, is translated tabernacle. It means tent, dwelling space, or home. So in Isaiah, they use this prophetic word, and it speaks of a future dwelling place of God. Now, we know that the ark was a, a conduit or a communication system where God would come down upon it, and they would even hear the voice of God coming from above the mercy seat. And so it represented the hub of God's 
presence. So to have that is to have a place where God comes into a dwelling and dwells with man. So this restoration of this in Isaiah is speaking of this moment that also James is identifying a person will sit on the throne of God and rule forever. That is Jesus himself. The passage clearly refers to Jesus. Now, when James brought this up uh, and the passage in Amos also, he was talking to these believers about what was going on and they recognized this. Some of the Jewish believers, uh, they were uncertain. They didn't like the idea that, that Gentiles were getting saved. They weren't sure about it, but they did find it in the scriptures and proved it. Now, in consideration of the restoration of our relationship with the Spirit of God and the presence mentioned here next, I refer to this story of how that tent was made. And I found some interesting things about it in Scripture. So we're going to see that David welcomed God's presence correctly, or the Ark of the Covenant being symbolic of that presence, which was the type of the presence of God's Spirit. And it's quite physical. It's quite natural. Everything, now this is the thing about how we relate to the Spirit of God. We relate to the Spirit of God in very physical ways. Now, we worship from spirit, but we still employ physical attributes, our physical mind, our human soul and heart, our emotions, our purpose, our will, our, our, our bodies are all used. There's certain things that happen. Uh, strangely, even scientists have studied what happens when people raise their hands in worship. There is even uh, electromagnetic energy that has been detected. That there, we are. I heard one uh, teacher years ago said like this: "It's kind of like antennas. That when we raise our hands, things can happen." I know. I feel that when sometimes I don't think about raising my hand, I just know get some of that. Like, just get up and reach it. And I'll do that. Even playing the keyboard, often you'll see me. It's like I'll switch hands out. I feel like I don't want to miss out on what's in the air. I want to grab some of this. So I, I hold my, my, um, my sustain pedal down and play, and I'll put both hands up and sometimes just cry. Something happens. But see, that's a physical thing that I'm doing. I'm actually physically raising my hands. And different people do different things physically to trigger a spiritual thing. And this is not something that was different from what Jesus did. Think about it. He made mud and stuck it in a guy's eyes. That's a very physical thing that he did. He, he told um, other people to do physical things to prove their healing. Pick up your mat and go home. They had to physically do things, and when they did that, it triggered a spiritual event. And, you know, roll away the stone. They had to physically roll the stone away. Oh, Lord, surely by now he stinks. Uh, I like the King James. Surely by now he stinketh. <laughs> if we move that stone out of the way, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be horrible. He, he, this physical thing. I like the prophets of old. Even Naaman came with leprosy. And he said, go, the prophet said, go dip in the river seven times. And it just seems so silly to Naaman. That he didn't want to do it. But remember, it was his servant that said, no, you, you want to do this. If the prophet asked you to do any great thing, you would have done it. 
But it's a simple thing. Come on, just just do it. He had an attitude. So don't we have better rivers than the River Jordan in our own home? I could have dipped all day long there without having to come all the way here. Now watch your attitude. Just go dip. So they just, we see the Bible full of these physical things. So everything we're looking at about David is physical. But yet it translates into him receiving a reputation from God where God said, he's a man after my own heart. Which means that David did physical things that caused God to feel that he was in pursuit of his heart. Now we live in a spiritual realm. Nowadays we have access to spirit like never before. The veil in the temple is ripped. So we have access and we operate in spirit. We have the baptism of the Holy Spirit and a potentially full relationship with God through spirit. We know that Jesus said we must worship him in spirit and in truth. But that does not mean that to worship him, we just lay in a corner and become spiritual zombies and emanate spiritual radiation out of us and receive waves. No, it always is connected to a physical thing that we do. And this is where I found a lot of interesting um, perspectives in, in this passage. So in the message that we're looking at tonight, I want us to examine David's interaction with the ark of God as analogous to our relationship with the presence of the Holy Spirit today. Amen? How many of you are, are semi-intrigued with this message? Let's pray. Father, as I raise my hands to you, <laughs> I do feel your presence. And I pray that your glory would be here. I pray that the power of the Most High God would move and flow like a river in this place. And we want to welcome you as David welcomed you. I would like that we gain such a reputation. Antioch is a church after God's own heart. Those people worship like I've never seen anyone worship before. Lord, I'm not afraid to astonish the onlookers with the caliber and quality of worship that we can exhibit here. I'm not ashamed of my responses to you, nor am I proud because it can be quite humiliating at times. But we pray that you would speak to our hearts tonight and help us understand these basic principles in Jesus' name. Amen. God is so wonderful. So we're going to see seven things we do to make God's presence feel welcome. I know you want to make him feel welcome. First of all, even if we never go into this passage, you can answer this question, how do I make God feel welcome? All you need to do is answer the question, how do I make a human being feel welcome? How do I make you feel welcome in my home? How will you make me feel welcome? I, I don't like when I walk into a room and nobody greets me. You ever have that? You walk and they don't even look at you and you feel kind of insulted. Like you don't even say hello, hello. And you sarcastically say something like hello, hello. Oh, hey, and I know it's somewhat of a fault of the millennials now. They're not quite as greedy as the people before, uh, but it is important. There's some protocols to living in a society civilly that we talk and communicate to make people feel welcome. I can't stand when I go to the McDonald's and the lady behind the register looks at me like this. I say to them, can I help you? And they look, oh, oh, can I help you? <laughs> so something's missing. In, in, the same, in the same way, 
there's a natural response. And I'm, I, would, I wouldn't say it if I haven't done it at least five times. I have in McDonald's about five times. I do like McDonald's at J8 Bishan. There's an old auntie there. She is wonderful. Hello, welcome. You know, she's so boisterous. And I feel so welcome that I have chosen McDonald's over healthier options because I know I'm welcome when I go in there. So it's the same with the presence of God in our life. If we, if we extend a welcome to him, he feels welcome. He manifests. God goes where he is drawn upon, where he is called, where he is pulled. And that's what David had. Remember, David was a man after God's own heart, which means he was going after him. He wrote the song, as the deer pants for the water brooks in thirst. So my soul longs after you. He wrote so many beautiful lyrics about the hunger he had to communicate with God. And it all starts with that pursuit. Number one, we pursue the presence. And this is the passage in 1 Chronicles 15, 25. We're going to start. So David and the elders of Israel and the commanders of units of a thousand went to bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord from the house of Obed-Edom with rejoicing. So starting with this, I like that it says David and the elders in, in Congress together, a group of them, the leaders, people of prestige, and that are leaders in his community that he's made and that God is blessing with, they make a choice to go specifically to retrieve the ark of God. And I see it as a beautiful picture of what we, so this is, like I said earlier, this is not the first time that David is trying to do this. The disaster at Uzzah happened first uh, because of the haphazard manner in which they tried to bring up the ark. And I find that people will sometimes not pursue the presence of God correctly. And, and what I mean by this is they're not using proper and adequate honor. They're not, they're kind of just waiting for something to happen. Whereas we do need to go after it. We need to make it a pursuit. We need to make it a goal. And they, some people don't quite get that. It's hard to relate. And most just give up pursuit or they may try for a while and say, well, you know, I'm, I'm not giving up. We had a conversation about this the other night, by the way, before you think I'm preaching to you, I'm not. <laughs> we, were talk, we were talking about this at their, at their house. And I think part of that conversation is what triggered this message. But it, it's honestly some valuable information for all of us. So David did not settle into this place of not having the presence of God with him for very long. He was angry. He was frustrated at what happened, at his attempt to bring God. You see the analogy. He tried to contact God, bring the ark into his place. It failed. He was angry. He went away frustrated and just set without the ark. And meanwhile, Obed-Edom is being blessed. But David, this is working on David. It's bothering him that why don't we have the ark here? What went wrong? In other words, he did not accept that it's not possible for me to bring the ark. It's not possible for me to have the presence of God right here with me amongst our camp. It has to be possible. So he began to pursue. He did a lot of things. One of the things he did is he sought how he mistook the process. He did this by actually going into the law 
and carefully reading about all of the details that were given to Moses concerning how to treat the Ark of God. And they were very intricate details, very carefully mentioned, with warnings that if you don't do this properly, uh, you will be consumed by God. What happened to Uzzah was spoken of in the law, but they were ignorant to it. You understand? They didn't understand. They didn't know that. They just went and did this. Let's go get it. Yeah, high five. Go get it. But it's it's more important that that they learn, and he had to learn. He didn't just say, well, I don't think it's even possible. We can't get that ark to come with us because it's just going to kill somebody else. Let's just leave it where it is. No, he knew there has to be a reason why. Sometimes if we don't have the presence of God, if we don't feel fulfilled in that, maybe we need to really start researching and believing our heart. The scriptures, David went to the law. David went to the Bible. And he found the passages that talked about how to relate to the ark. And he amended his plan, re-strategized his pursuit of the ark, and went, and now he's doing it right. And that's actually what we're studying now. He pursued God. So David didn't settle for not having the ark. No man can have a true encounter with God if he, if he not be desirous of that relationship. And that's the number one ingredient to a move of God. The number one ingredient to God's presence in our life is spiritual hunger that comes from within our own heart. How hungry are we? It's a passionate hunger for God's presence that drives one to seek God until successfully finding him. Now we go to the second one. We sacrifice for the purpose or for the presence. Verse 26, because God had helped the Levites who were carrying the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, seven bulls and seven rams were sacrificed. Now, without going back into the laws about the animal sacrifices, they not only sacrificed what was prescribed in the law, but they went overboard. Like he figured, you know, if uh, more is more. And he, every step they took, he was sacrificing. He wanted to make sure that God was honored. He sacrificed to do that. I remember my first real encounter with God's presence outside of my salvation experience. My first encounter with what we refer to as the glory of God. I mean, the overwhelming presence. Because I was, I was in a church where I would see people have encounters with God. We had one lady in our church. She, every service she would have an encounter. She'd do, she would do the strangest things, and every service has one of them. There was one church uh, the, in the history, if you ever talk to the elders in your church, uh, Sarah, ask about the twirly bird. There was this lady in Bethany years ago that she would twirl like a spinning top. And she'd like do this thing where she'd spin around and spin around. She's still there? Wow. God bless her. So you know her, the twirly bird, yeah. She's been there. This is like, she's been there for 40 years then. And uh, I remember hearing Brother Roy Stockstill, the pastor and the founder of that church, talk about her. And when people would be critical, he would say, Le leave her alone. That's the way she relates to God. And then we're going to talk a little bit more about weird things. But whatever the case, you know, sacrifices are made. Sometimes we have to do things. And I saw people in my church, this one lady that would bend backwards, like she would keep bending and keep bending. She'd bend so far 
that she would turn and her head would go down to the ground. Kind of like a yoga move or something. But she was not doing yoga. She just was like so into it. And I remember, wow. And, and she also did a lot of weird physical things. Uh, we moved into a new sanctuary. And if anybody's watching online, you're from my original church. You know exactly who I'm talking about. I'm not going to name her. But there was this cross above the church platform where the worship team would be and where the preaching. It was just an old religious cross was up there. And there were two speaker cabinets to the right and to the left. And she would worship and she would direct her gaze to the speaker cabinet next to that cross up there. And I remember wondering, what is she looking at? It's like she saw something. <gasps> she would look up at that speaker cabinet. And I would be curious because I worked as an usher. I would look at the speaker cabinet like, what is she looking at? I wanted to know. In fact, I even gained access to the rear of that because it was very high up. You could go behind on another level and the speaker was coming from that room. I look, it's an empty cabinet. They didn't even have a piece of equipment in there anymore. So I figured, I don't know, what is she looking at? So one day I just had to ask. Because I had witnessed her directing at that speaker cabinet like through several worship sessions with tears. And I asked her and she said, well, Jesus is seated at the, at the right hand of the Father. So I'm thinking if he's at the right. And I remember kind of giggling inside. But later I started thinking about it. It was a physical switch that she developed to cause a spiritual reaction. And sometimes we do that. There's certain things. I have a ritual. It's very effective. I used it this past week. You saw me maybe post a couple of times, but I had some great times of prayer in my house. And it was because I, I kind of got away from my ritual, and I went back to my ritual, and bam, it was there, the power of God. My ritual is I go in my bedroom. I leave the door open. I read out loud the scripture that says, go into your your room, close the door and speak to your father who sees a secret. And I read it and then I get up physically, walk to the door and consciously close it and then go back and sit down. And it works. I don't know why it works, but it works. By the time I close the door and sit down and I'm even kind of just going through the motions like, let's go see. And to me, that's a sacrifice because I'm a very logical and semi-intelligent man. And I don't always connect those things, but I know it works. And for some reason it works, and I do that. Sometimes we need to look for that. And I saw these people having these encounters with God when I was a young believer, and I said, I need that. I started seeking, and I sacrificed. And how I sacrificed was I spent a lot of time alone in my room begging God for his presence. In fact, a whole year. You've heard the story before. 365 days. Then God somehow saw that sacrifice of my time, my energy, and my focus, and he rewarded it with his presence. David followed these requirements of sacrifice from the law. He went and did even more than he was required to do because he was trying to get God's attention. There's nothing wrong with that. It's like a young man and young woman. What a young man will do to get a young woman's attention is astounding. So many, Or what a young woman will do to get a young man's attention. My wife actually pretended she liked tropical fish when we first met. She, she pretended that she was into aquariums. She could care less. Believe me, now I know it was absolutely a farce. And she even got from my birthday, she got, was it a birthday or something or just a gift, Hans Fries 
Encyclopedia of Tropical Fish. It was a book like that thick. It was glorious. It was a beautiful book because it had all of the freshwater tropical fish and details about them, gestation rates, all those things, egg layer, live bear, all the information, temperature, blah, 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 blah. Anyway, I was an aquarium enthusiast and she acted like that was the greatest thing in the world and she let me read to her out of that book, the, the tropical fish book, and she'd smile. Mm, wow. Tell me more. She did not care about that. But it worked. It worked. It worked. It absolutely worked. I thought, what a perfect woman. She loves tropical fish. You know it was love at first sight, by the way. You know that this is after that. The f love at first sight was the <gasps> looking at her and hearing her New York accent. But that was just something she did to keep me attracted, and I, not that my attraction was waning, I was already attracted, but interesting. So this is what we did. That was a sacrifice for her. If you know the Barbara that is alive and well today, you would know that was a huge sacrifice. She does not have that length of attention about anything pretentious. She is so focused on logistically what's real now, and let's just not waste time. She's like she gets things accomplished and done practically, and but that was a sacrifice. And I appreciate the sacrifice. It was endearing. So it is with us. Sometimes we do things to be able to try to get God's attention. It will honor him. Take the risk of sacrificing for the presence of God. And you'll see fruit. Finding and welcoming God's presence will require certain sacrifices of time, of pride. You know, a lot of people don't really encounter God because of simple pride. They just don't want to be seen doing anything that is embarrassing. And that can be a really big wall, as we'll see in the story of David that actually happens with him. But so... We may feel a little fake or disoriented at times, maybe a little awkward about raising our hands or doing things like that, but God sees it. I found if we continue to press into his presence, there will be a breakthrough, but sometimes it takes a little sacrifice. Number three, we sanctify ourselves for the presence. This word sanctify means to separate, to consecrate. Consecrate just means to, if you have a bowl full of M&Ms, you remove the red ones and put them on the side. Do you ever color sort M&Ms? Anybody but me? Am I the only lunatic here? Yeah, I, I sometimes I pour the M&Ms out on the coffee table and I put them all in their colors to see if I can taste the difference between the colors, which I've never really found. Anybody found the difference in the taste? of No. They all, it's not like Jolly Ranchers or something. You know, they, they, they're just chocolate with a little sugar shell. But I sep that's, that's sanctification. That's separating from other things for a specific purpose. And this is what David, now David was clothed in a robe of fine linen. Did you know that nowhere else in the whole Bible does it talk about David's clothes but this? I looked, I tried to find where, where else was, what, did it talk about his kingly apparel or the only other clothing mentioned that you see was Saul's armor, if you think about it. Saul's armor, uh, and them putting something on David that was too big for him to try to get him to function and do those things. But this is David himself making a choice about his clothing and it being written in the Bible. So it calls my attention. David was clothed in a robe of fine linen, as were all the Levites who were carrying the ark 
and as were the musicians and Kenaniah, who was in charge of the singing of the choirs, and David also wore a linen ephod. So actually, David changed his clothes uh, from the regular to the special clothes. Now, David was a king, so if he was going to wear any kind of garment, remember in Hebrew culture, your garment said everything. So David certainly wore something that marked him as a king. And everyone knew that because kings were not allowed to go into battle in the front lines because they could be identified. Some kings would go in stealth and, you know, dress like all the other soldiers. And, but David certainly was distinguishable at this point to the enemy. And he probably normally wore kingly clothes, but now he's changed into everyone else's clothes. He's the same as the Levites. And he even goes as far as to put an ephod on, which was a priestly vesture, because he is, is wanting to identify himself with God in connection with him. So he is sanctifying himself. He's separating himself. Uh, he sanctified himself for this special moment of connect. Uh, we do the same when we come into the presence of God, or at least we should. In other words, a worship meeting is not simply a religious duty. It's an encounter with the one that made us. He's the highest authority, a powerful, loving God of all, and we should separate the moment as a sacred event. We go into any experience, worship, prayer, anything that is relating to Jehovah God, we should sanctify that moment entirely, as, as I do with my prayer time. Part of that sanctification is that door exercise and close it and go in there and I'm alone and I like, I like being able to connect in that way. It, and it's an encounter with God the one that made me, and he deserves that. He deserves that I sanctify myself. Sometimes that can even be through fasting. Sometimes it can be through a dedication of a certain amount of days that you say, I am going to do this ritual for this many days, believing. I mean, you certainly there were moments where Joshua and the armies of Israel were questioning why they had to walk around that stupid city so many times. Think about the sixth day. And they're marching around. There had to be some naysayers in the group. Like, this is stupid, man. Why are we doing this? Wearing ourselves out, marching around this impenetrable city. And if it weren't enough that each day they had to march the whole army around the whole city, on the seventh day they had to do it seven times. Think about by the sixth time on the seventh day, all marching around. Oh, come on, would you give me a break? But finally that seventh time and the rumbling and the walls of Jericho just fell down. I like there's actually scientific explanation of what took place, something to do with seismic activity and vibrations and the sound of the screams. And because the mass of the soldiers had marched around day after day after day, little by little, it began to erode the cohesive qualities of the wall and the cement structure and the way that it was connected. So therefore, the seventh day, with many times around, it just did, it brought it to the fragile end. And then they blew all the trumpets and screamed, and then it shook it and it just fell apart. Now that's a natural explanation. Even if that were so, who told them to do that? God. And they didn't understand it. There was not like a bunch of scientists sitting around. You know, if we scientifically approach this, 
And we march around the city, you know, little charts and seismic readers and, you know, ch checking tectonic plates under the city. I don't think that happened. But we see David sanctifying himself. We sanctify ourselves. As we enter his presence, we go to him. We should separate the moment as a sacred event. Amen? How many of you have seen some interesting things in this? I see them, and I'm so happy. Number four, we wholeheartedly celebrate God in the presence. Uh, not half-heartedly, not uh, semi-heartedly, but wholeheartedly. So all Israel brought up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord with shouts, with the sounding of ram's horns and trumpets of shofars and of cymbals and the playing of lyres and harps. As the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David dancing and celebrating, she despised him in her heart. Now, the question is not whether or not she despised him, but why? Later she explains it. We're not going to make our way all the way to that, that passage. But she said, you just look like a common man out there in your linen underwear jumping around in front of all the young women so that they could all see you. She, she was jealous and angry because what she was witnessing, she did not comprehend. It's interesting to note she was not in the celebration. She was in the palace. She was not joining the procession. She was scrutinizing from afar. And that often happens with worship experiences. All right, I'll liken it to this because the Bible likens it to this. It says, be you not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. When they received the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, they assumed they were drunk. They looked drunk. And so there's an analogy between wine, the new wine, and our relationship with God. We become in the present. When we really worship, we do get silly. We can get Silly. I saw Lee down a moment ago just like doing all kinds of things over there, having an encounter with God. And it's beautiful. I, I thank God for people that, that can experience that. And, and you too, you just were kind of, I thought, I, was, I thought maybe you would fall. And that's wonderful. I can't express how difficult it is sometimes for me to stay standing back here and play this instrument when that happens. And so in this wholehearted celebration, David is doing things that cause him to be ridiculous or able to be ridiculed. And this is Michael. So David so vigorously praised God, it was shameful. Because later when she said, how dare you do that? He said, oh yeah, you ain't seen nothing yet. I will become even more undignified than this. If you thought that was bad, you just wait. I'm going to ramp it up. I'm going to be like a buffoon. I'm going to do flips and cartwheels. And uh, you think, well, who would ever do that? Uh, I, I, have, I have done things in worship that I am not proud of at all. I had, this is a true story. I was in Mexico, and we were down there on a trip to our ministry that I had founded uh, back in the 1990s. And this was already in the 2000s. And we went down there just to encourage. I brought a team of pastors. And the Spirit of the Lord was so strong. And um, the the pastor that was traveling with us, actually Pastor Butch LeBeau, he said, he said, you're going you're gonna to dance tonight. And I, and I don't dance. You know, I don't do that. I, when I was first saved, I would do like they called it the charismatic hop. 
I don't know if you've ever seen the charismatic hop. This was something in that it's a thing where you dance, but you do like this. That's the charismatic hop. And then there's the pasture bounce because you have a suit on and you try not to get all sweaty. They, they do like this little thing where they just kind of to look like they're bouncing like everyone else. And that's, that was very common in the 1990s and 80s. And But the rest of us would do this almost like Rockettes chorus girl thing. With our, and, but well, you know, it's pretty cool when everybody in the church was doing it. You say, well, what instigated that? Who taught you that? People taught me that. But you know what? It worked. And we had so much fun just being silly and dancing and enjoying wholeheartedly, not ashamed. When I first went, I was ashamed. And I saw them doing it. I'm like, what are they doing? This is creepy. And I just kind of folded my arms and looked like the Grinch and watched these nuts. And then that lady worshiping a speaker up there. And then all of these things going on. Why are those people laying on the floor? took me a while to get with the program, but honestly, all the steps I took to get with the program were not spiritual, but physical. But in this particular case, I'm down there in Mexico, and the pastor says, you're going to dance tonight. And I said, dance? I don't even dance. He said, you're going to leap up, and you're going to, he told me all these things. And he, what he was doing was prophesying to me. I didn't think much about it. I said, oh, yeah. I said, oh, yeah, I'm okay. I'm cool. I can dance. And so the worship started, and I was praising God. And it was my time to get up and speak and introduce. I was going to interpret that night. But the power of God hit me, and I started to dance. I mean, really dance and leap. But I, had, I was like Michael Jordan. You would have had to have seen it. I'm a big guy. You don't get this body high in the air. They said, he said, man, he said, you were jumping as high as my head. Head. He says, your feet were that high off the ground. It was impossible. And I was. I was just leaping around, like doing this David thing. And it was glorious because the presence of God was so strong. A lot of people got saved that night. People got healed that night. Another strange physical thing I did once, I was in a church in Zachary, Louisiana at um, uh, Scott Hornsby's church, and I'm, I'm preaching, and the power of God was getting stronger and stronger, and I started shaking, and I didn't, like I had to do something. I felt like I was going to blow up, and I just ran. I just ran. I couldn't do anything but run. I ran so fast that Barbara said later that when I went by, the wind off my body sucked bulletins off of the pews and paper was following me. You know how fast you have to be moving to get a vortex of a vacuum of wind going behind you? I was gone. And as I did, God's glory fell in that place. Like the more ridiculous I could be, caused a greater reaction from the Spirit of God. The pastor of the church said, when you were running, holy fear filled this sanctuary. That's the way he worded it. He says, we were afraid to breathe. Just something came. It's interesting now, connected to physical things. That when I no longer have an inhibition, when I'm no longer worried about what people think, David could care less what people thought. He's the king. You know, what's the matter? I'm the king. I do whatever I want to do. And he did this. And Michael was, of course, embarrassed, his wife. But as we enter the moment of welcoming God's presence into the church meeting, how much energy do we really invest into that? And that's what we really need to make sure that we do. That investment pays off. Number five, we accept the presence intimately. 
And then this is interesting. This caught my eye this morning. I really liked it. So it says they, uh, note the pronoun, they. This is referring to those that were all dressed like David in the linen and the ephod. These are the priests. These are the ones in charge. They brought the ark of God and set it inside the tent that David had pitched for it. Now, this is what caught my eye. I, I researched to make sure. Everywhere else about any activity, it says they did it. Here it says David pitched this tent. You understand? When you're a king, you tell other people to do things. But he, he did not let anyone else do this. He pitched this tent with his own hands. He wanted it to be personal. What he received the Ark of the Covenant into had to be something he produced. And everywhere else, I looked for it, everywhere else, David was commanding people to do all the things, offer the sacrifices, play the instruments. David danced, and David pitched this tent. And they presented burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before God. After David had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord. As the ark arrived, David brought it into this special tent that he personally pitched for it. Which, by the way, God loved this tent. Later, in fact, in spite of the amazing tabernacle that was constructed by Solomon, which in our daily reading we've been looking at uh, the fact that David accumulated all of the materials, but God did not allow him to make the temple. Solomon did it instead. and But he accumulated all the materials when Solomon built that temple. And I started thinking again about this. Some theologians believe, well, God was not going to allow him to build that temple because he had blood on his hands, because he did what he did, uh, those things, you know, issues like that. But I rethought that this morning. I think God did not allow him to build that temple because the temple he built could never be topped. You understand? That that tent, that little intimate tent, was more important to God than that grandiose, splendid temple of gold that was made. That is more important because God values intimacy above all things. He desires that you personally, intimately accept his presence. The personal experience of making God feel welcome requires that you pitch the tent for him. Don't have other people do it. Don't sit around waiting for a worship leader to do stuff for you. I feel that weight sometimes when I'm up here. Try, I'm trying. I feel like I'm bulldozing sometimes. Like I'm trying to get everybody into the presence of God. And you're like, if you would just play a little better, maybe I could have an encounter with God. You have to pitch your own tent. We all have to do our own. We have a responsibility when we collectively do it together. And honestly, when I see you pitching a tent out there, I feel great. And then I really have an encounter with God. My encounters up here are often triggered by you encountering out there. Because they were all together in one place, in one accord, in unity, all experiencing together. But everybody doing their part in worship. Everybody working together to make it happen. The personal experience of it. Whew. Number six. We use music to 
worship in the presence. I do like this part. He appointed some of the Levites to minister before the ark of the Lord to extol, thank, and praise the Lord, the God of Israel. Asaph was the chief, and next to him in rank were Zechariah, then Jazael, the uh, Shemaremoth, Jehiel, Mattiah, Eliah, Benaiah, these individuals, Obed-Edom, and Jehiel. They were to play the lyres and harps. Asaph was, was to sound the cymbals. These are specific instruments designed to worship God. And Benaiah and Jehaziel, the priests, were to blow the trumpets regularly before the Ark of the Covenant of God. So we see the use of these musical instruments to celebrate uh, the king, uh, with the king, and to celebrate uh, the presence of the Lord, the coming of the presence. And David uh, himself, you know, was a very skilled musician. In fact, he was the best that they could find when Saul asked for a musician. In the entire kingdom of Saul, when he was having the issue after the Spirit of the Lord departed from him and an evil spirit was on him, he wanted someone to play music and they sought in the land. Because what do you get for the king? You get the best. And David was the guy. He was a shepherd at the time. They brought him out of the field shepherding and he was really good at playing that harp and singing. I would love, wouldn't you love to actually just sit in a little concert with King David on the harp? And he, I know we wouldn't understand the language that he sang, but it would just, I'm sure it would be beautiful music to listen to. But he was a musician. And I see musical instruments as a major component of making God feel welcomed. Uh, that First encounter I had with God, it was with a guitar. Uh, I have had 24 hour or 23 and a half hour is my record uh, worship sessions nonstop on this instrument. It's not even physically possible to sing and play an instrument that long, but something happens through the, the instrument and spirit. God can use them. That's why I always tell people, please learn an instrument, learn an instrument. You can use it as a tool. It, helps you get in. I don't need it. I can enter the presence of God without this, but it I, it helps. It makes it easier for me. Let's, let's go to the last one now, number seven. We honor the presence every day. So David left Asaph and his associates before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to minister there regularly according to each day's requirements. He also left Obed-Edom and his 68 associates to minister with them. Obed-Edom, son of Jeduthun, and also Hosah were gatekeepers. And David left Zadok, the priest, and his fellow priests before the tabernacle of the Lord at the high place in Gibeon to present burnt offerings to the Lord on the altar of burnt offering regularly, morning and evening in accordance with everything written in the law of the Lord, which he had given Israel. What I liked about this is we don't see here a one-time encounter, but we see that as he entered the presence of God, experienced successfully the ark of God with his people, he perpetuated that connection. He invested into it. Uh, tax money had to go to pay for this. Imagine if you could get the government of Singapore to pay for worship teams to worship before God. I would, I would be happy to do that. That would be a fun job to have. Have a government pay you from tax dollars because they want the presence of God in their nation. It can happen. 
it can happen. It's happened before. Uh, it's interesting that um, uh, some of you hear me talk about David Hogan, uh, kind of a wild man. He. This is back when um, I forgot who the president was at the time, but Donald Rumsfeld was uh, the chief of staff or something. He's the one that had David Hogan uh, taken to the Pentagon. And uh, David told me this story. I remember, <laughs> wow, like, wow. They had him go to the Pentagon, and they brought him in. So it's, it's the Pentagon, right? That's a very, very secure place. And they walked him down some halls to an office here, there, the other. He didn't quite know why he was there. He was kind of worried. How do they know about him? But he figured, you know, they know everything. It's the Pentagon. You know, it's the CIA, and they know everything. And they brought him to the center of uh, this one place, and, the, and they opened into a room. The room had no furniture in it. It was a big room and an odd shape, and in the center of the room was the presidential seal of the United States of America. And they put him in the room, and they just said, do what you do, and they closed the door and left him in there. He said, for at first, he just kind of wondered, why am I here? But then he just felt it. And he says, I need to pray. And he prayed and he marched on that symbol and prayed for the nation. He said he prayed for everything he could think of. After a certain amount of time, they escorted him out. Isn't that strange? The government would place a demand. They, in other words, I bet there was a division. I always thought about this. Uh, I bet there was a division of the government that aimed at spiritual qualities and found personnel resources in spirit to bring them and employ them in somehow trying to bring blessings to the nation. It does have Christian roots, the nation, and it is a Christian nation according to Americans. Of course, it's diverged in many ways. There's all kinds of faiths. But I found that to be very interesting. And here, this is exactly what we see. David is using the funds that come in to, uh, the, to support the government and support his kingdom to hire all these people. These are a lot of people that were working all together. And he had uh, 68 associates alone with this guy and then gatekeepers that would perpetually do this. Then the sacrifices themselves that had to be given. An investment was made to every day honor the presence of God. And this was perpetuated for a long time until Solomon was sidetracked and that caused the division of Israel and the two kings, Jehoiakim and the other, they arose, Rehoboam, and I'm getting the names probably wrong, but the kingdom was split and Judah and Israel. That, it, until that time, when they waned in giving the attention to God like this, that's where the nation fell apart. David ensured that God was honored every day and every night. So we have to do that. We must endeavor to honor the presence of God, not just during a church service or on a Sunday, but constantly. And I'm only here to help you one or two days a week. Uh, you're on your own all week long, and it is your responsibility. We are kings and priests now. We have to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. And I recommend that you go after God, that you make him feel welcome in your life. These are the seven things that we saw. What we can do to make God's presence feel welcome. Number one, we pursue. We go after it. We're going to have to go get it. Even if past experiences were negative. Even if you've never been able to successfully bring the ark in, it does not mean that you just leave it there and forget it. You, you have to have it. 
Uh, we sacrifice for the presence. It takes some sacrifices. Uh, it takes sacrifices of, of pride. It takes sacrifices of, of things that it just, as I say, Naaman felt silly dipping in the water seven times. He didn't understand, but it had a spiritual result. And we do that raising your hands and these these simple things we sanctify ourselves for the presence it's, i mean we separate the moment we call it holy we call it consecrated we sp pay special attention to the moment where we are going to collectively worship where we're going to come together and i always think about that the upper room experience was predicated by them being all together in one accord and one place, that unity of focus. If you can get that to happen, anything can take place. We wholeheartedly celebrate God in the presence. Do it not half-heartedly, 100% bend over backwards, literally, that lady would do. If you have to be a twirly bird, be a twirly bird. Whatever comes through you, we accept the presence intimately. You're going to have to pitch the tent. You have your own private tent that you personally pitch for your own private encounter with God's Spirit. And we use music. If you don't play an instrument, I highly recommend you learn one. And learn a simple few little worship songs. You'll find power comes through it. Number seven, we honor the presence every day. Every single day. Amen.